Good morning. Glad you're here today. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, thank you for being here with us. And if you are traveling, watching online now or later, uh, thanks for listening today. We have been working on the Sermon on the Mount the past few weeks, and I've done all the talking three weeks in a row. And if you feel like we've been driving 100 miles an hour, then today is the day for you because we're going to downshift and it's going to be more like we're doing 15 and a 30 for the next few weeks, all right? So today, just the first 16 verses, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles, on your devices, it's going to be on the screen as well. And it's your turn. Um, I've talked a lot, and you've let me talk a lot, and you've listened a lot, and I appreciate your patience in that. But uh, I would much rather hear what you have to say and so we get to start that today. So here in just a minute, as I read these first 16 verses, I want you to be listening for what does this teach us about God? That's where we're going to start. And you may already have a lot of notes from the past few weeks, and that's great because I encourage you to be writing down what you were hearing in the past few weeks. So truths about God, who God is, how he works, his nature, his character, the things that he does as the foundation then for if these things are true about God and this is who God is, then what is God saying to us today? You individually, your heart, your life, us as a church, um, and for you to share some of those things that you hear God saying because we believe that during this time when we're praying together, reading the Word of God together, studying together, that it is not just about the person who's standing up here and his ability or charisma or speaking ability or intelligence or teaching ability, but rather, we're praying for a spiritual work to be done in our hearts that only the Spirit of God can do. That the Spirit of God would be speaking through the Word and even through the person who teaches up here, but to the whole body together, the whole united body of Christ, and that the Spirit would be saying things to us and opening our eyes to see that in His Word. And so we want to take some time today to say, what is the Spirit of God saying to you from these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to pray for God to be doing that very thing by his spirit and by his word. And we're going to express our dependence on him, that I can't make this happen, you can't make this happen, that he's the only one who can do it, and we're trusting him to do it and asking him to do it. And then we're going to read believing that he's answering that prayer. And as we read, we're going to focus on the things that he would say to us. What's this teach about God? What's God saying to your heart right now? So that's where we're headed. Um, if you'll pray with me right now, I'd really appreciate it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege and the grace of studying your word together as your church. Please teach us right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. Give us spiritual ears to hear what you are saying to us. Give us spiritual eyes to see you and the glory and grace and greatness and goodness of who you are more and more. And give us soft spiritual hearts to receive and believe what you are saying to us and to be changed by the work of your Spirit through your Word so that we look more and more like your Son, Jesus, like your people and your church for your purposes. 
in our lives and in your world. Father, you are the only one who can do this type of work, and so we come to you and we ask you to do it. We trust you to do it because of Jesus. And so we thank you for the promise and the grace that you give us in Jesus, and we ask this in his name right now. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 5, the first 16 verses, if you want to read along. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay. A lot smaller chunk than what we've done the past few weeks. What stands out to you today? What's that teach us about God? Yeah, uh, so if you could hear Phil there, he said that Jesus didn't actually pursue the crowds. He saw the crowds and goes up on a mountainside and teaches, and they come to him, and, and he was saying Jesus isn't all about numbers. And that is something, there's a lot to that. We could spend a lot of time on that. Um, if you want to see the place where this may be, one of the places, or several places in the gospel where you could look at this in more detail. But in John 6, if you want to make a note and turn there sometime this week, he's got this huge crowd following him. And he feeds them, uh, multiplies food, feeds them. And he says, you know, the only reason that you all keep following me is because I've been giving you food. He's like, but none of this is really about physical bread. I'm the bread that came down from heaven, and you need me. I am the bread of life. And he turns from this act of feeding the crowds, which draws the crowds. And, and most of us would say, hey, okay, you've done something that worked really well. A whole lot of people came, and the crowd got really big. Keep doing what you were doing. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to do that anymore because that was never the point. I'm going to tell you who I am. That was the point. And the more he tells them who he is, the more cantankerous the crowd gets. 
And you might think the people say, okay, well, Jesus, hey, this isn't going so well. When you were feeding them, that went well, and the crowd got big. Now you're talking about who you are, and they're not sure about that. So why don't you back off this a little bit and feed them again? Well, he just doubles down on who he is. He's like, let me tell you what you have to do. You have to be so fully committed to who I am that you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the whole crowd leaves. Like it's so absurd to them, so foreign to them, so offensive to them that he would teach himself in such a supreme and exclusive way that the crowd leaves. And you may think he'd really be like, well, I blew it. I ran the crowd off. But instead he turns to the 12 apostles that are left and he says, hey, do you want to leave too? (laughs) Like either you accept who I am or you can't really follow me, is what he's saying. And so Jesus isn't, focused on impressive, visible results like numbers or a big crowd. Jesus is focused on teaching, like he sees the crowd and his response is, okay, here's the purpose. I need to teach you about the kingdom, his kingdom, about himself. Teaching the truth about his kingdom slash himself or who he is. So Jesus isn't focused on impressive, visible results like numbers or a big crowd. Jesus is focused on teaching the truth about his kingdom and himself. What else stands out to you? Yeah. Oh, Easton, jump, jump first. What do you got? God is the light of the world. That's awesome, buddy. Easton, are you six? That's our, our six-year-old contributing for us this morning. And do you know how awesome that is? Like, seriously, that we can read this together? This isn't a small truth. (laughs) This is really, really significant. Thanks for speaking up, man. I really appreciate it. Saw some of your highlights from yesterday, too. Easton's quarterback for uh, one of our Mount Juliet teams, and they won 33 to nothing yesterday. So he had a good day yesterday and a good day this morning. God is the light of the world, and it's really interesting. I hope we circle back around to this more here in a little while. But um, in the same way, well, first of all, Jesus says this here to his followers, you are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And then here's the big shift. And glorify not you, but your Father in heaven. And do you see how on the surface that doesn't seem to make sense? Like if Jesus says you're the light of the world, In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds. Doesn't it seem like if you're the light and you're letting your light shine, they're seeing your good deeds, they would glorify you and praise you for it? But Jesus says, the way this works in my kingdom, like if you're part of my kingdom, when you shine your light and they see your good deeds, they're going to praise God for that. They're going to glorify your Father in heaven for your good deeds. And built into this is something that we see 
really explicitly and clearly throughout a lot of the New Testament, and even, I think, earlier in the sermon, and that's why I was saying we'll probably get back to it in a little while, but the idea that when you are in Jesus' kingdom by faith, when you are trusting Jesus and not yourself, you have come to him as the one who's able to save you and then live in you and work in you to produce what he wants in you, and you're relying on him as your spiritual resource and not yourself, the good things that start to flow out of you are because of him and not because of you. It's because his spirit lives in you and is changing your heart and is producing his goodness in you so that when those things flow out of you, yeah, you're really doing them. Like you are really the one living that out in this world, but it's the work of Jesus in you. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the source. He's the one producing it so that every good thing you do is for his glory. It's that he will be seen and that he will be known. And so when, when he's saying you're the light of the world, you're the light of the world because the one who is the light of the world is now living in you and shining through you. That this is God's work in you. God producing his goodness, his light, his truth, his righteousness through you so the world can see it and see him through you. So yeah, God is the light of the world. God is the source of every good thing that's going to flow out of you. That you will only have those things produced in you and come out of you in as much as you're connected to him. Joined to him by faith, living in daily dependence on him so that he can produce his stuff in you instead of you trying to produce your stuff for him. Really good one, buddy. What else? Mm, great. Jesus is the best thing we could ever have, regardless of what the world says are you looking at 11 and 12 okay I, I just didn't want to assume that you know when Jesus says blessed are you when people insult you persecute you falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me and notice specifically it's not just hey go out and be an absolutely annoying frustrating unlikable person so that people will insult you and be mad at you? That's not what he says there, right? Like, if people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of who you are, that's not the point here, right? It's because of Jesus, because of the way that you love and trust and follow Jesus and live for Jesus. Because of Jesus, then you're blessed. But when he says this, when he's saying, hey, the whole world can be against you, and if everything that you receive from the world is terrible and awful, but it's because of your relationship with me, then you're blessed. And just built into that, like there's no way that can be true unless Jesus is better than all of that. Lose all of the praise and admiration and, and, and popularity that the world has to offer. Lose all of it, but you gain Jesus, and he says you're blessed. Because what you gain in him is better than everything you lose in the world. And he says, rejoice, verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Like this, this reward in heaven, because you know Jesus and you're united to him in faith and you're part of his kingdom, the spiritual rewards of knowing this spiritual king and being accepted by him and being part of his spiritual kingdom is better than everything in the world. And if having him and his kingdom means you lose all of this, 
You're better off. You're blessed because he's better than all this. The only way verse 11 and 12 is true is if Jesus is greater than this world. Jesus is greater than all the things of the world. Everything that the world could offer, anything that you might lose by loving Jesus and following him, the only way that's a blessing to lose all that and have him is if he's better than all that. And so, yeah, Jesus is the best thing we could ever have regardless of what the world says. What else are the truths about God that stand out to you? Some, oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yes. Um, so she said that she used to look at the Beatitudes here, a lot of times verses 3 through uh, 10 are referred to as the Beatitudes. It's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. But this list of, you know, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, that, that list as a checklist of, okay, these are the things I'm supposed to do. And if I do these things, then I'm going to earn this stuff from God. Like, this is my performance from him, for him. If I can check this stuff off, I'll get these things from him. And I'll tell you that this thought right here, first of all, it's one of the main reasons why I wanted us to spend the three weeks we did, and I made you endure like three hours of just me talking to try to set the context for the sermon because this idea of approaching this like a checklist that we perform in order to earn something from God is the normal, natural, human way to approach religion. And if we come from just our natural understanding, we will take everything that Jesus says, anything you find in the Bible, and we will read it through that framework and we will twist it to say that. And so, you know, we've tried to spend three weeks setting a context that says something different than that, but I think we can see it even in these words, and I want to come back to it in just a minute. But what she said was, I started to realize, hey, this isn't a checklist that I pursue these things in order to get this stuff from God, but rather, if I'm pursuing God, if I'm focused on God, if, if, if I have a relationship with God where I'm turning to Him, trusting Him, depending on Him, that this stuff is... In, in Galatians, you get the fruit of the Spirit, the list in Galatians 5. This stuff is like the fruit of the Spirit that now flows out of me because in my relationship with God, He's working in me and changing me and producing this stuff in me so that all this stuff comes from knowing God and seeking God, pursuing God, trusting God, loving God. It's actually something that He produces in me and helps me live out, not something that I do for Him to perform for Him or achieve for Him or deserve something back from him just like you hear it in fruit of the spirit and you know, where's the fruit of the spirit come from who's the source of that not a trick question fruit of the spirit the spirit right love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control it comes from the spirit and if the spirit of christ lives in you because of the gospel of christ the spirit is producing that fruit it's growing out of you 
you could say naturally, but it's really supernaturally, spiritually, the way that fruit grows on a tree. You know, when, when apples grow on an apple tree, it's because that's what the apple produces. I mean, the tree produces. The tree produces apples. When the fruit of the Spirit grows out of you, it's because that's what the Spirit produces. If He's alive in you, He's producing those things in you. And so also, when you're in relationship with God, when He is living in you by His Spirit, He's producing these things. Now, absolutely, there are rewards. And it's a wonderful and glorious thing. It's a gracious thing when we receive all of this goodness from him, all these blessings from him. But it is the heart of the gospel when you see the way you receive all of that is because he has done something for you and he is doing something in you. And the only way you get anything from him is when he gives stuff to you. Like if you come and you try to produce it in your own strength and your own effort, I promise the stuff you produce won't be this. You will not live up to Jesus' teaching. His standard is too high. And so I want to come back to that again in a few minutes and it'll connect to, both, to this truth and to what Easton said just a minute ago. But for now, let's summarize it like this. At the heart of Jesus' teaching, is a relationship with God. Where we trust God and depend on God and just in contrast, not, I'm going to call it this, a contract with God where we perform For God. So, at the heart of Jesus' teaching is a relationship with God where we trust God and depend on God, not a contract with God where we perform for God. And that is the difference. That, that chart that we used for two whole weeks, the first two weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, where we say, hey, here is like human religious righteousness that you see with the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a contract where I'm trying to perform for God versus the real righteousness of Jesus that he starts to produce in you when you're in his kingdom. That's this relationship with God where we're trusting God and depending on God. Um, for, if you're in uh, Keith and Carol's community group on Wednesday nights right now, they're working through a book called The Cure. And that whole book is basically built on, it's this long-term illustration, the exact same idea as these two categories, but in, in that book... One is it's two rooms instead of two categories. It's called the room of good intentions, which is most of our religious efforts. I've got good intentions to do good things for God versus the room of grace, where I'm trusting God and depending on him to do these good things for me and in me. And if you're in that and you want to line those two rooms up with our two categories, it's, I think it would be a really helpful way that God be teaching the same thing at two different times in your life right now. And if you're not in their community group and you want to grab that book, it's called The Cure. It's super short like 90 pages of reading, something like that. But it may be the best practical gospel book, like how the gospel should impact our lives and our relationships that I've ever read. Um, so if you want more information about that, grab me or Keith afterwards and we can get you. It's like three authors, but it's really easy to find on Amazon. Uh, but a great book and it would line up really well with what we're doing in the Sermon on the Mount right now. Any other truths about God? Was there another hand I was missing a minute ago? It's hard for me to see you sometimes with the lights. Anything else about God? 
All right, one more, yeah. That's awesome. Um, how many of you all have watched The Chosen so far? The, the, have you seen the one? Uh, yeah, our students are doing it on Sunday mornings right now. Um, have you seen the one where he does the sermon, on, where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount? And afterwards, um, the really wealthy lady, you know, her, Joanna, is summarizing it um, back for John the Baptist. And she says, the whole thing was backwards. Like it's the first thing. Like it was, it, everything was upside down and backwards. I don't remember exactly how she just said it, but that, that was her idea. And that's exactly what we're saying right here, that, that Jesus shows up. And, and we talked last week about Matthew gives us four chapters of what a great, amazing, incredible, powerful, history-fulfilling king that Jesus is. And then he shows up and starts talking about the people who are going to be in his kingdom. And the first four descriptions of them are, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? They're in spiritual poverty. They don't have a lot of spiritual resources. They don't have a lot of spiritual goodness to their credit. If they had a spiritual bank account, it's empty. Right? They're, they're not rich in spirit. They're not wealthy in spirit. They're poor in spirit. They do not have what they need spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that, that fourth one there may sound more righteous to you, like, oh, they desire righteousness. They hunger and thirst for it. And there is some truth to that. But think about, when are you hungry for food? When you don't have enough food in your stomach. Like, when are you most thirsty? When you don't have as much water as you need. You need more water, so you're thirsty. You need more food, so you're hungry. So these people don't have the righteousness that they need. They lack it. And so they're hungry for it. They're thirsty for it. So people who don't have enough righteousness, don't have the spiritual resources they need, mourn because of that, are meek and humbled because of that, Jesus is like, those people are blessed in my kingdom. So the people who, did you say conquer, victorious? The people who, I mean, we could expand that, who are accepted in Jesus' kingdom, successful in Jesus' kingdom, who conquer, I always said victorious, so I'll do that one since it fits there. Whoop. Who are victorious, wrong pencil, in Jesus' kingdom, who are accepted, successful, victorious, who conquer in Jesus' kingdom. are the opposite of what the world expects and are already, did you say empty? How did you phrase it? Now, what did you say? You said, don't remember, <laughs> are already empty, lacking, like out of their own resources. 
and I know that's not a pretty sermon point, but we're just trying to capture the truth of what Jesus is saying here, right? The, the, the people that he's taught, these people are blessed and the kingdom belongs to, to them and they're welcomed into his kingdom. Like, they are the ones that, when, when the world would look at people and pass a verdict on them and say, you know, successful or not, the world would look at these people and say, not successful. But in Jesus' kingdom, this whole thing gets reversed and these people that the world would reject and say they failed and they've fallen short, Jesus looks at them and says, blessed welcomed into my kingdom. I give my kingdom and I share my kingdom with them. Blessed in my kingdom. They are accepted. They are successful. But they're people who don't have on their own what they need. And again, this connects to everything that we're going to say in just a minute, but I'm going to leave it for one more second because I want to ask you all one more thing. What's God saying to your heart right now? Application for us, and I know I've talked through a little bit of it already, but are there specific things that you want to share that God's saying to your heart for you or us as a church before, you know, when I take off, it's like done for you. So here you go, your chance. Anything else you want to add? Hmm. Okay, you want to expand on that at all, Eric? Or? Yeah. So, yeah. So, and think about last week when we tried to sprint through chapters one through four and just get this big overview of how great of a king that Jesus is. Like, you think about that king. Most worldly kings, you can't just walk up to them. Like, almost nobody has access to them. Commoners do not have access to them. And especially not the lowest of the lowest, the worst of the worst, the most outcast and rejected in society. They can't get an audience with the king. And so you get four chapters of Matthew saying, think about how great this king is. See how great this king is. 2,000 years of prophecy from Abraham. 1,000 years of prophecy from David. 700 years of prophecy from Isaiah. Everything God's promised. This is, Jesus is that king. He's that great. The king of the nations the king overall, the king who is God with us. And then large crowds, oh here, back up a little more, verse 24 in chapter 4, news about him spread. Like This is the king, he's on the scene, and he's preaching this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you would think, we can't get close to that king. We're not right with him, and he would destroy us. Instead, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. All the people who would have been rejected in that society, all the outcasts, the least, the most broken, the most helpless, the neediest, and they're able to come to this king. A commoner can't even approach a normal king of the world in that time. But this greatest king, the king of heaven, the spiritual king over all, and these people that the world would reject, they come to him and he heals them. Last week I used that to say, hey, see how great of a king that Jesus is? He has authority. He's the king who has authority over disease and the king who has authority over demons and the king who has authority over disability. And that's true. You see the greatness of Jesus in this, but also see the goodness of Jesus in this. That Jesus is the king who accepts broken people. 
Jesus is the king who heals people with diseases and demon possession and disability. Jesus is the king who accepts people that everybody else would reject. Jesus is the king who allows outcasts to come to him and be received. Jesus is the king who helps those who can't help themselves. You see Jesus' greatness in this section, but you also see his goodness and his grace in these very same verses, that he's the king who welcomes these people into his kingdom. And that fits perfectly with his very first verse, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right here, physically, these people don't have what they need and can't help themselves, and those are the people Jesus helps. And he basically says, that's an illustration for my whole kingdom. The people who don't have what they need spiritually and can't help themselves, that's who I help. Yeah, Jesus is approachable, and and we could spend forever on that. Anything else, application-wise, something that God's saying to your heart, something else you want to add? Jesus came and did what we couldn't do. in order to redeem us and equip us for what he calls us to do. And one place, maybe the most challenging place to see this in this sermon, and there's lots of places that are really challenging, but if you get to the very end of chapter 5 and my intentions that we'll do 17 through 48 next week, and so we'll get here next week. But he, this first chapter ends with this call from Jesus. He said, this is, what it's, this is what it means to be in my kingdom. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he means that. Like that is the standard for his kingdom. He's a perfect king, And his kingdom is perfect. And his father in heaven is a perfect father and a perfect God with perfect standards. And in one sense, Jesus is saying, only perfect people can be in my kingdom. And then he's looking at those very same people. And he says, and I know you're not. Not just are you not perfect, you're not even fairly wealthy along the spiritual scale. You're poor in spirit. The other way that you know that he knows you're not perfect is he shows up and the first thing he says is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He, you don't call perfect people to repent. So like, you've got to be perfect to be in my kingdom, and I know you're not. But he's saying, so here's the deal. You have to see and believe and admit that you aren't what you need to be. The people who admit that, I accept them and I receive them and then I give them what they need. What you don't have that you need for Jesus' kingdom, Jesus gives to you by his grace. But the people who won't admit that, who won't come to him, who won't come and say, hey, I am bankrupt. Jesus, will you share with me your spiritual wealth and your spiritual grace? The people who won't say that can't receive it. 
And if you don't receive it from him, you don't have it on your own, and you won't get into his kingdom. It's why he says there, the, the verse that we focused on so much the first two weeks, in verse 20, when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Like the ones who show up, the most religious people who show up with their own righteousness and they offer it and they're like, hey, here's, here's my offering to get into your kingdom. Here's my status. Here's my credentials. Here's my accomplishments. Jesus says the very best of that that humans can offer, it's not good enough. They will not get in. If you come and your claim on the kingdom of heaven is you, it won't happen. But Jesus says, if you come and you admit that you aren't good enough and you believe that I am and you believe I'm a good and gracious king who will give you what you need, I will give you what you need and then you can get into my kingdom. Jesus is the reason you get into Jesus' kingdom. And so let's sit down in the Beatitudes for just a minute today and wrap up because I've referenced it with every one of these truths. They're all tied to this. And I, I hope you'll see the connection here, but as I've spent time in the Beatitudes oh, it's over several years, this flow, the, the order that Jesus goes in here, I think is really deliberate. And, and I know I've already said some of this, but I want to bring it all together as we wrap up this morning. So he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And notice that he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then down here at the very end, like a bookend, he says the same thing again. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the only two times that, that's, that he repeats that particular reward, the kingdom of heaven belonging to him. The first one and the last one, almost like bookends. And nothing else is repeated in the middle. And, and so I feel like it does give us an idea that he's got something going on here in his mind with this structure. But watch what goes, watch goes on in this structure. Up here, they're poor in spirit, and we've talked a lot about that already. You're spiritually bankrupt. You don't have what you need. You're lacking in spiritual resources. You come before your king, and if he were to say, here is what it costs to get into my kingdom, and you have to say, I don't have it. I can't pay that. I can't earn that. I don't deserve that. I'm poor, and this is the most glorious kingdom in the universe. I cannot afford that kingdom, not with my own resources. And the people who see that about themselves mourn. God, I see that where there's supposed to be righteousness, there's sin instead. Where there's supposed to be obedience to you, there's disobedience. Where there's supposed to be goodness, I'm filled with selfishness and wickedness and evil. All the ways that, that I should be living the way that you call me to. I'm the, I lack that. I'm the opposite of that. And I'm sorry. And I mourn over that. And it humbles me. Like, it makes, like I realize meek is basically, I'm not self-assertive. I'm not going to put myself forth as, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. Look, this is about me. Praise me. Thank me. Reward me. That meekness is, I'm forgetting about myself. My hope is not in myself. It won't be me. I'm leaving myself behind and I'm looking to you. 
Because I know I'm poor in spirit and I'm mourning about what I lack. And so I've gotten over myself. I've started to die to myself. And I realize that me, that my, myself, is so lacking in righteousness that I'm starved for it. I need it, but I don't have it. And I, no matter what I try, I can't get it on my own. It's not enough. Now, so we start there, right? Emptiness, lack, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, don't have it. Now look at the second half. That's the first four. Look at the second half. Now he talks about the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So now, the first, the first half of the Beatitudes describes emptiness and lack. Would you agree with that? They don't have what they need spiritually. They mourn because they don't have it. It humbles them, and they're starved for righteousness, but they can't get what they need. The second half sounds like people who are really righteous. They're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers, and they're actually so righteous that the world is now persecuting them because of their righteousness. So what in the world changes from the first half to the second half? I think in some ways this is the key to the whole thing because this is the hinge for the whole thing. These people who are poor in spirit and mourning and meek and starved for righteousness, something happens right here. When they confess that and admit that and they turn to their king in faith and they're saying, I don't have the righteousness I need. I don't have the spiritual resources I need. And I'm sorry and I repent and I come to you. People like that, they will be filled. They've been empty to this point. And Jesus says, here's my promise to those empty people. I will fill them up. They have lacked to this point. And Jesus says, I will give them what they don't have. And notice, I mean, just as clear as day, it's not for they will fill themselves. It is not that. It is not. They'll work real hard and eventually earn it. It's a passive thing for them. They will be filled. Someone else will do this for them. Someone else will do this to them. Someone else will do this in them. They're starving for righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus says, I'll satisfy that hunger. I'll satisfy that thirst. I will fill you up with the righteousness that you don't have. I will give to you the righteousness that you lack. And then, after that, like once they come and say, I don't have it and I can't get it, and Jesus says, I'll give it to you. After that, look what flows out of them now. When Jesus fills them up with the righteousness that he gives, now flowing out of them is mercy and a pure heart and peacemaking and so much righteousness that they're actually persecuted because of it. And Jesus says, when I change you in that way, now great is your reward in heaven because I've given to you what heaven requires. I'm producing in you the things that are consistent with my kingdom, and now you receive all the rewards of Jesus' kingdom because Jesus is the one who lives up to the standard of his kingdom. Jesus is the one who's enough. And he says, and now I've made you, I've changed you in such a way, I've made you a part of my kingdom in such a way that you're different than the world, and you can impact the world. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world because Jesus has filled you with the spiritual resources of his kingdom, and he's turning you loose in the world now to be agents for his kingdom. 
right, to fight this spiritual battle for his kingdom, to advance his kingdom, to make him known to the glory of God the Father. But it all hinges on, do you come depending on yourself, offering your own resources, offering your own righteousness, thinking that you're good enough, or maybe thinking you're not, but trying as hard as you can to find a way to get there. But no matter what it is, relying on yourself, or do you come broken and honest, confessing to your king, I don't live up to your standards. I'm not enough. I can't get there on my own. I'm like these sick and demon-possessed and paralyzed people who either you heal them or there's no hope for them. That's who I am spiritually. Either you heal me or there's no hope for me. Either you fill me up or I won't have it. Either you give to me what you want from me or I will never have it to give back to you. You are my only hope. And Jesus is saying when people see that that's the type of king I am and they admit the truth about themselves and they stop trusting themselves and start trusting him and relying on him, he says, I will bless those people. I will fill them up with all of my righteousness, all the righteousness they don't have, and then everything I am will start flowing out of them. My mercy, my purity, my peace, my righteousness, a righteousness that's foreign to this world. But all of it hinges on they will be filled. Four verses of emptiness and lack, emptiness and lack, Jesus says, I will fill them up. They will be filled. And then four verses of fullness and righteousness and everything that the kingdom requires. And so everything we've said through here, this is why God would get the glory for your good works. If good works start to flow out of you like that, it's because he filled you up. It's his righteousness in you. This is why you can be different than the world. This is why that people who are poor in spirit and mourn over it can be blessed. Yes, you lack it, but Jesus doesn't. No, you don't live up to the perfect standards of your Father, but Jesus does. No, you could never get into his kingdom on your own. Your righteousness won't be enough, but Jesus' righteousness is enough, and he promises to give it to you, and not just a little bit, to give it to you so much that he fills you up with it. And so the way that you live for his kingdom is by dependence on him. The way that you live for Jesus' kingdom is by daily dying to yourself. And in that same moment that you're dying to yourself, you're dying to the kingdoms of this world. And you're relying on him and you're trusting and you're coming to him in faith and you're saying, my only hope for living in your spiritual kingdom is for your spirit to live in me. And I know that some of the things you've told us, the ways we do that, the way we're filled up with your righteousness and your spirit is through the word and prayer and community with other believers. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God. That's the gifts that God has given His people to do this work in us. And it's why we come together in moments like this and why we have community groups and why I'm encouraging you to study the Bible this way on your own and to spend time in prayer because this is how God pours out His spiritual resources. It's not that doing this stuff, it's not that coming to church or reading your Bible or praying earns those gifts. Surely you see this morning that people don't earn these gifts. But Jesus says, this is the way that I give it to you. Trust me. Meet me here. Come find me. Seek me here. And I will give you what you need. And then the last thing before we start to worship again and thank Jesus for who he is and celebrate this fact. And and I pray that in song, believe it all the more. I want you to think about if this picture is right, 
If Jesus knew what he was talking about, and maybe you don't believe that he does yet, and if you don't, I pray that you'll keep listening to his words. I believe that his words will convince you over time. There is supernatural, spiritual power in his words to work on your heart. But if you do believe Jesus and you believe that he knows what he's talking about, I want you to think about him when he says, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This, this judge is showing up, this righteous judge. And he's going to look at you and you're not right with him. He says, be perfect because my father in heaven is perfect. That, that's the standard he's going to judge you by and you don't live up to it. And I want you to imagine, like, it just surely every one of you have a moment in your life that you can go back to when you know that you have fallen short like you are in the wrong, and it is clear that you are in the wrong, and everybody can see it, and there's nothing you can do to make it right. And you're at the mercy of somebody else. And if they say justice and condemnation for you, you're just like, yeah, that's what I deserve right now. I could tell you a hundred stories. Uh, I'm going to go back to the first really... Uh, really detailed one I remember like from my childhood where it was just like, oh, I really am a sinner the way they tell me at Sunday school. <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was either three or four. And I, I mean, I, I was raised in church. I, my parents are here this morning. Um, and I had heard a lot of Bible stories already, but we were visiting my mom's sister in Pensacola and she had a son, like my cousin, who was my exact age, and then a daughter that was my younger brother's age. And I don't know where all the parents had gone. My parents and their parents were gone. Maybe it was like a date night. And it was just my mamaw, mom's mom there, watching us. And she gave all of us, do you remember those like cube pieces of chewing gum that used to have the, like, the juice in the middle that you would bite and it would like explode in your mouth and it was so like wet, liquid, they were just, I don't know what they were called, but she gave us each one of those pieces, and I popped mine in my mouth immediately, and it was just fabulous, the way a three- or four-year-old would think about it. Well, my cousin, Luke, laid his down on an end table in the living room, and it laid there for a while, and every time I saw that piece of gum laying there, the envy and the coveting grew in my heart. I couldn't call it that then, but it did, and eventually there was nobody around, and so envy and coveting turned into stealing. And I grabbed that piece of gum and I stuck it in my little pocket. And then I hatched my plan. And I went outside in their backyard and they had some trees back in the back. And I went back far enough for nobody could see me and I popped his piece of gum in my mouth. So now I've got two of those pieces of gum in my mouth. And I chew it for the next few minutes and I go back in. Well, Luke starts looking for his piece of gum. I hadn't planned this far ahead. And Mamma comes to me, and she does exactly what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And she knows. I mean, Mamma knew everything. And, and she knows. But she's like, do you know where Luke's gum is? No. <laughs> you sure you didn't chew it? No. So now I'm lying about it. I've coveted it. I've stolen it. Now I'm lying about it. And she says, open your mouth. I <laughs> So I open my mouth, and clearly I've got this huge wad of gum in my mouth. And she's like, you're sure you didn't steal it? And like she was getting up, and I was like, yes, I took it. And so I admit it to her. But in that moment, when I'm looking at her, like, I'm completely wrong. There's nothing I can There's so much. There was so much sin and darkness, just the, the seeds of it in my heart already, 
And it really, it was a true picture of who I was and who I am without Jesus. But there was nothing I, like when I, there was nothing I could do to say, well, here's why I did it and it was right. I was wrong. And I just, do you know that moment in your life? And have you ever experienced that moment with somebody who decides, I'm not letting you off the hook? Like, I'm going to come down as hard on you as you deserve. Now, do you know what a helpless, powerless, awful moment that is? When it's like, I deserve this and I'm going to get this and there's nothing I can do about it. And this king shows up who has a standard far above anything in this world, whatever that moment is for you, whatever you can imagine, when you stand before Jesus someday, when I stand before Jesus someday, and he's like, you're a thief, and you're a liar, and you covet, and you envy, like just all from that one moment. I mean, and add all the rest of my life on top of it. If he were to look at me and say, you deserve to be destroyed for that, there's nothing I could do about it. There's nothing I could do about it except you're right. That is my heart. That is who I am. That is what I've done. You're right. I have no claim on you. But do you know what it's like in that moment when that person who is the righteous judge looks at you and you deserve condemnation? And there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Like you're completely at his mercy. And he looks at you and he says, I don't hold it over your head. Yeah, you're poor in spirit. You lack the goodness and righteousness I require. And instead of condemning you, I'm going to bless you. Instead of casting you away, I'm going to accept you. But the only way I can do it, like you, you have to have this to get into my kingdom, and you don't have it. So the only way I can do this for you is to give it to you. This price has to be paid. But Jesus says, I'll pay it for you so you don't have to pay it. You you have to have these things, but you don't have them. So Jesus says, I'll give you mine. And walk through the Beatitudes one more time and just see Jesus. Like everything that Jesus says about the people in his kingdom, see Jesus in it. Jesus had all the glory and wealth and riches of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who was rich left his riches behind and became poor so that you who are poor can be rich in his kingdom. Jesus knew all the joy and love and perfect fellowship of his Father in heaven. The eternal perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And he steps down out of heaven and he becomes the man of sorrows. A life of mourning and rejection by his own people. Jesus mourns so that you can rejoice with him in heaven. Jesus is the meekest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself to the point of becoming a servant, even humbling himself to death on a cross. The one who deserves all glory and all worship, the one who is in the most exalted place as the king of the universe and king over all kings, humbles himself and steps down meekly to death on a cross so that you, who should be meek, you can be exalted to a place that you could never earn. Jesus has never hungered and thirsted for righteousness like this because he's been filled with it for 
all eternity. He is the source of righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one stepped down and took your sin on him and became a sinner in you so that you could become righteous in him. We've already said that he's the righteous judge. He has every right to condemn you. And yet when he steps down into this world, he steps down in mercy. And he says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus shows you the extent of mercy that you will never know unless he lives in you. The pure in heart, Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that you are, yet without sin. Perfect purity a heart completely submitted to his Father. Jesus steps down to a sin-stained world. He's perfectly pure, and he steps down to a sin-stained world full of sin-stained people, and he says, I will take your sin on me so that I can give my purity to you. And he steps down as the Prince of Peace, and he says, you've been at war with me, You rebelled against your king. You have not submitted to my kingdom and you shouldn't be welcomed to my kingdom, but I will die for you so that I can reconcile you to God, so that you can be at peace with me, so that I can give you my peace. Everywhere you look here, this is Jesus for you, 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 Jesus for you. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Nobody has ever known the persecution because of righteousness that Jesus endured. The perfect life, the perfect love, perfect submission to a father. Betrayed by his closest friends. Denied by the one who should have spoken up on his account, arrested by the religious and legal authorities who should have done the right thing and sought out justice, but they didn't, beaten, mocked, spit on, and then crucified like a criminal. Not because he had done something wrong, but because he had done everything right. Persecuted because of righteousness, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to him. And he says, I've been persecuted in your place. I've died in your place so that I can give to you what's mine. Everything in the Beatitudes is something that we will never do on our own. But everything in the Beatitudes is something that Jesus has done for you. And Jesus offers to do it in you. If you will trust him and come to him and get over yourself. Stop looking to yourself. Stop relying on yourself. Stop hiding the fact that you aren't enough. And confess it to him. He says, I bless people like that. Do you know what it's like when you stand before someone and you say, I've completely blown it. And I deserve condemnation. And that person looks at you and says, Yeah, but I'll give you mercy. When you stand before somebody and you say, there are things broken inside of me that I cannot fix. And he says, I know, but I will heal you. 
when you stand before somebody and you say, I lack all the things spiritually that I need. And he says, I know. But I have all the things that you need. And I will give them to you. Will you trust me? Will you come to me? That's what Jesus is saying to all of us this morning. That is the message of his kingdom. You can only find it in him. But you can find all of it in him. And I pray that you will. I pray that you do. I pray that you see Jesus for who he is. And that you keep trusting him and relying on him more and more. I pray that's the type of church that we are becoming as he keeps working in us by his spirit. And so we're going to pray that together right now. I'm going to ask you, pray that with me. And then we're going to sing together. We're going to have people down here to pray with you. And so if there's something that God's just working on in your heart right now and you want to talk and pray with somebody, talk about what it means to follow Jesus like this, that's part of what this time is for. So let's pray together. Father, you are the only one who can do this. We desperately need you to do it. Please help us see how desperately we need you to do it and then work in our hearts so that we will confess that and turn to you and trust you to do it. And by your grace and because of your promises in Jesus, Father, I pray that we get to see your great work that only you can do in our lives and in your church. May this be a church. May we be people where your kingdom is coming now on earth as it is in heaven. Live out your grace and your kingdom through us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us? Come and pray if you want to.